Hello and welcome back to True Crime Guys Podcast. I'm Lauren. And I'm Michael. All right, we're going back to Colorado. We just can't resist because we got too many awesome listeners from Colorado. <laughs> and we recently yeah. did a Just a Banter over on Patreon where we asked what cases you always wished we would cover. And this case in particular came up multiple times from our Colorado yes. listeners. So big shout out to CO. Y'all are crazy out there. Um, and I don't know what's going on, if it's the high elevation or what it is, right? but there are... Uh, an inordinate amount of shootings going on up there. It seems like there has been. They were doing mass shootings before it was even like, uh, I, don't, I hate to say popular, but a thing that happens far too often. Right. So, Especially this Aurora. One, yeah, Especially Aurora. Aurora. This one dates back to 93. Uh, I mean, I guess you could classify it as a mass shooting, only even though there was only four, four uh, dead in this one and a fifth victim wounded. But... Uh, yeah, crazy absolutely. story a lot more to it than meets the eye like when you first look into it you, you just glance at the wikipedia page like i was able to dive in and find some good stuff there's a couple of really good sources that we'll talk about on the other side of the intro yeah um that i used and fascinating killer in this case and uh, we'll obviously have some information about the victims as well but exactly this this killer was one of the more honest uh people and and had some issues with bipolar and stuff. That's no excuse. He clearly was uh, culpable for what he had done. Right. And sat on death row for a long time because of it. Um, that's a whole conversation too. Death row being uh, disbanded in 2020 in Colorado um, just recently. And mm-hmm. so we'll talk about all that. I think we kind of already did with the Gary Lee Davis episode not long ago. That's right. He'll come up again in this one as the last person that was killed on death row in Colorado. But uh, yeah, a lot to this case. And Michael, you got some good audio clips from this killer to listen to uh, use for this intro. So I can't wait to hear it. Oh, yeah. Let's see what he's about. Yeah, let's get into it. All right. Through all the chaos and desperation of trying to save lives in the restaurant that night, the macabre sounds of the Chuck E. Cheese's music and the dancing animated figures on the stage. They couldn't get the music or the dancing puppets to stop. Yeah, they were on 920. Elijah noticed it. It was pretty slow, or, you know, they weren't really the way around and stuff. So I was like, well, you know, I could go and do this, you know. And so I started looking, and I started thinking, well, all I can do is I gotta shoot these people. So I'm like, okay, well, we'll shoot. And so I started, you know, I was just, while I'm doing everything else, eating and playing video games stuff, I'm just keeping an eye on people, find out who's there, who's gonna be working, who does they gotta shoot stuff. And uh, they all had one thing in common, they didn't know me. And because I didn't, I didn't have no association with them, to me their life wasn't done, to me. When I saw the last couple at the counter, getting their little prizes and stuff, I went to the men's room. And I was, I was still kind of iffy on it. And, you know, I went ahead and kind of, just, like I said, hyped myself up. Came out and walked straight out the bathroom. Shot silk. And once that happened, it was all up. I didn't see the salad bar. I didn't see, uh, see, I didn't hear the music. Uh, it was like a, just blackness, just empty. Why did you kill him? There were witnesses who were crying. That's why. I had no feelings at all. No excitement, no nothing. Just to bleed. Four people died. And basically to me, their lives were only worth uh, three, four hundred dollars. I 
peace. For me, death ain't nothing. I don't, I'm not afraid of death. I'm afraid of death. All right, for our case this week, we are doing the Chuck E. Cheese shootings. And if that title doesn't pique your interest, I don't know what to tell you. Thankfully, <laughs> right. there was no children harmed in this. Obviously, there were some innocent victims that were killed, yeah. and that's tragic. But uh, when you that hear was Chuck E. Cheese shootings, I bet a lot of people were just like, nope, not listening to that one, because you're yep. immediately thinking that children were killed. And just uh, so you know, if you held on this long, no children were harmed in this episode. Yeah, honestly, I feel like that's why I've never really looked twice at this because (laughs) you know you see the title chuck e cheese shoot i'm like nah we can save that for another time you know right we're not that desperate for cases but there actually were no well there were there were minors harmed in this i mean there were teenagers teenagers, young teenagers um but not small children as you may have workers it was all it was exclusively workers that were targeted in this The, the shooting happened right after closing of the store Mm-hmm. Um, after 10 p.m. Um, and I have some great sources here for you guys if you want to learn more about this case. There's an episode of Death Row Stories. Um, it's actually season one, episode eight. The episode's called Eye for an Eye, all about this case, all about the killer in this case. Right. Um, and then a uh, also a special called Capital Punishment, Decision to Kill, Nathan Dunlap. Mm. And so both of these, that one is more, uh, that one was closer to the time that the case ha- occurred. That was where the interview with uh, the killer in this case, uh, with him just freshly putting, being put on death row and where he was just unbelievably honest and saying things that was like made him look terrible. Yeah. Uh, and later he would be put on medication and become kind of a model prisoner and ultimately be removed from death row due to the you know, from death, the uh, capital punishment being disbanded in Colorado. and Right. The governor at the time yeah. wanted to disband the death penalty. Yeah. yeah. We'll go into so, all that. Yeah. So let's get into it. Uh, we're going to start with the horrible crimes that occurred on the, at this Chuck E. Cheese uh, back in 1993. So on December 14th, 1993, a cold-blooded killer slipped into the bathroom of, the, of an Aurora Chuck E. Cheese location just before closing time. He was no stranger to this location and had, in fact, planned this attack for some time. And this store, and I think most Chuck E. Cheese's, closed at 10 p.m. And this one was Sounds no different. Average. Closed, yeah, closed at 10 p.m. A family birthday party on this night had stayed a little bit late, and the parents were just now bundling up their kids uh, to prepare for the cold. I mean, this was December in Aurora, Colorado, right. so very cold yeah. outside. Freezing. Yeah. The 50-year-old store manager, Margaret Kohlberg, uh, headed back to the office to start tallying up the night's receipts. She was actually new to the night manager position. This was her first night managing this mm-hmm. store. And in fact, the killer uh, in this case was, you would think would be targeting a specific manager, which was not this one. That was what's kind of crazy is like the person that this you know killer supposedly had a beef with was not even working this night. That's what's right. bizarre about it is like he targeted a bunch of people that he had no issue with, but right. we'll get more into that later. But uh, Margaret Kohlberg goes back to the office to start tallying the receipts for the night. She planned to go home shortly after closing once she got her teenage workers out the door. So you, this is that mad rush that you, you see a lot of times in the food industry, retail, like where the store closes and you try and get all your duties done real quick so you can leave because you can't leave until the store is cleaned up, at least to some extent, exactly. and things are put away. And so right, right. The, she's tallying up the receipts and the workers are all frantically doing their duties, vacuuming, you know, cleaning up the, you know, the kitchen and things like that. Mm-hmm. And finally the store doors were locked at 10 PM and the workers hurried through all their closing duties uh, so they could get out of there. 
Five minutes later, at 10.05 p.m., the killer who had been hiding out in the bathroom exited the, ba the bathroom with his 25 caliber semi-automatic pistol ready to enact his revenge. He first shot 19-year-old Sylvia Crowell, a student at nearby Metro State College, who was cleaning the salad bar. She was hit from close range in the right ear and was mortally wounded. Mm -hmm. Then he turned his sights on 17-year-old Ben Grant, a high school wrestler who was fatally shot near the left eye as he was vacuuming. Oh, and so this first God. shot goes off. Ben Grant sees what happened and just doesn't even have time to really react because the killer had the jump on all of them. Also, and, you know, vacuuming, do you think he even yeah. heard it? You know, this I is a do small because caliber I pistol. I, that's what I initially thought when I read up on this case. But then when you listen to the killer retell, he actually retells from death row these events. And he says that Ben Grant saw it coming to an extent, like just didn't have time to really do anything about it, but did mm -hmm. hear the first shot go off and was quickly shot uh, near the left eye, as we mentioned, while he was vacuuming. Right. Then 17-year-old Colleen O'Connor, a senior at Eagle Crest High School, definitely saw it coming and to an extent pleaded for her life as he approached. Um, he said that the killer later said that he was surprised that she didn't run. He was expecting her to run, but she just was frozen. And mm -hmm. all she said was no. And that's when he shot her once through the top of the head. And more about that specific murder later on, because that actually, he was cold and calculated and it felt nothing until that specific killing. And that was one of the things that was super interesting about um, his interviews was that he, he talked very candidly. Mm -hmm. He's a piece of shit, don't get me wrong. And knew damn well what he was doing uh, was yeah. wrong. But uh, that was an interesting part of the story, just hearing how Colleen, um, looking at him in the yep. eyes and saying no changed him a little bit and actually he got frustrated with her like how dare you make me feel bad for this basically right well not bad enough because he continued yeah. this massacre yeah. yeah so yeah so 20 year old bobby stevens had only been working at the chuck e cheese for two weeks on this night it was his second job and he was working a double shift so he could afford presents for his budding family he had a newborn baby at home and was trying to get his life started. So he was grinding, working two jobs, even taking double shifts at Chuck E. Cheese. And he would end up being the lone survivor of this shooting. Um, mm -hmm. He returned to the restaurant after taking a smoke break outside, thinking the noise that he heard from inside the restaurant were uh, was children popping balloons nearby. And so as he entered the restaurant and unloaded utensils into the dishwasher, a man came through the kitchen door raised his handgun at him and fired a shot that struck Stevens in the jaw. He did see, uh, he did see, um, this man come through the kitchen door and raise the handgun out. He knew right away that this was, this was trouble, yeah. um, but had no time to do anything about it. And he was struck, uh, by the bullet in the jaw, at which point he fell to the floor and played dead. Luckily. It worked. It worked. The man moved on to the office. That being said, later in the interviews, the killer also, mentioned how he knew that it didn't kill him. That was another interesting part about the interview. He, he later said, yeah, I knew it didn't kill him. But, and, and so when the interviewer asked him like, well, why didn't you then finish him off? He said, because I don't like blood and I just didn't think it was worth it. So he knew he was letting him live that therefore okay. moving on, moving his, making his way to the office where, uh, as we know, Marge was counting up receipts and whatnot at, and as soon as he left the room, the kitchen, Bobby ran out of the, uh, kitchen and out of an exit. He escaped through a back door and walked to the nearby mill pond apartment complex where he pounded on a door to alert someone that he and others had been shot, shot at the restaurant. So 
while the killer's still in the restaurant, in the office, dealing with Marge, this person, you know, uh, Bobby had already escaped and was alerting police. Um, the killer then forced the new nighttime manager, uh, 50-year-old Marge Kohlberg, a mother of two, to unlock the safe. And um, she, once she opened the safe, um, it was too late for her. The man then shot her in the ear. And as uh, he was taking the cash out of the safe, he fired a second fatal shot through her other ear when he noticed that she was still moving. And he later said that he didn't want her to suffer. That's why he fired that second shot. Jesus. Showing at least some degree of humanity, I suppose. I guess. Um, Could have just took the money and like just left at that point, right? You obviously didn't care. And you left the other dude alive already. So you knew mm -hmm. you had a witness, but yet you mm -hmm. were still going and killing people. Some, mm -hmm. There's a lie somewhere in there. Yeah. Right? Yeah, because I mean, you had to think there was blood from the first shot, right? And you said you didn't like the blood from Bobby, but yet you're willing to shoot her again. Right? Yeah. And you're willing to shoot Colleen right in the head. Maybe he, I mean, I maybe he suspected that uh, Marge was going to die from that first shot, and that she was just going to suffer. Whereas he, maybe he knew that he hit Bobby in the jaw, and that he was likely to live, and just didn't feel the need to finish him off. I don't know. Okay. Yeah. Nonetheless, it, it didn't help his case, you know, as far as leaving a, a sole survivor here, because this, you know, Bobby would go on to testify against him later in court. Oh, of course, he had to have known that. That's yeah. that's what's weird about it. Yeah. So. The man would end ultimately flee the scene with $1,500 worth of cash and game tokens that he stole from inside the restaurant. Bobby Stevens, who escaped, the lone survivor, would be, end up being hospitalized at Denver General Hospital in fair condition. Um, and he was interviewed in one of the um, sources that I mentioned earlier, that, uh, that death row stories. He was ultimately right. interviewed during that. Uh, and you, you can't even see, you, like, you would expect to see some sort of damage to his face, but yeah. uh, he looks totally normal. Well, twenty-five caliber, you know, if yeah, maybe if it round. ripped through his cheeks or something, you know, you're mm -hmm. not going to have that bad. He damage. might have maybe some really well done work. dental work, fake, you yeah. know, fake teeth or something. Yeah, but you can't even tell, no scar mm -hmm. or nothing. Well, I'm glad. I'm glad he yeah. came out unscathed. Yeah. So as authorities arrived on the scene, they found two bodies in the restaurant's hallway, a third in the room off the hallway, and the fourth in the manager's office. Um, uh, the young female Crowell would be sent to Denver General Hospital where she was declared brain dead and ultimately uh, died from her injuries the next day at Aurora Reg Regional Medical Center. There was an interesting interview with her mother during one of these, during the Death Row Stories episode in which um, her mother asked the priest at the hospital, you know, what brain dead meant. She didn't know what that meant. And, the, you know, it was her soul still within her body. And the priest told her that she's already with, with God. So... I think they may have made the decision to go ahead and pull the plug. I'm not 100% sure on that, but right, there was no recovering for her. <clears throat> so at the scene, police allegedly encounter an individual uh, who tells them that a man named Nathan Dunlap, a former employee of Chuck E. Cheese, is the shooter. They didn't declare who this person was that told them this at the scene, mm -hmm. but coincidentally, also at the scene, was Nathan Dunlap's mother. So the person That's that odd. they're being, yeah, the person that they're being told was the shooter. His mother is also at the scene. That's because she has connections to this Chuck E. Cheese. I believe she has another family member that worked there at some point or still worked there. Plus her son worked there at a, at a time. She knew most of the staff yeah. at this Chuck E. Cheese. And so but, when well, she heard that there was this shooting going on, a lot of people that knew people there flooded to the scene and it was oh. a frantic scene. So, and she was one of them. I was, I was about to say, why was she there in the first place? Did mm -hmm. she give Nathan a ride or something? Because I'm like, God almighty. No, yeah. That's a, 
Yeah. That's a whole different situation. So she just mm-hmm. showed up because she heard about the shooting. She she, yeah. she didn't know and Nathan she knew was people there. That had worked there, maybe still worked there. Maybe a nephew or something. I, I think you it was more think. than just her son that had worked there. And maybe that's how her son got the job there is through another family member or something. Right, right. But you don't think she had some kind of inclination just knowing her son, knowing how he is. She is his mother after all, you know? Right. I mean, she had to heard about this and go, oh God, I hope Nathan's not involved. I, I didn't get let on that she had any inkling of it, but she did. She was not reluctant to, you know, get him to go down and get interviewed by police. She was willing to help if, if her son was indeed involved. Um, she, she wanted to help. Um, right. So that's what I'm saying. I'm not saying like she had something negative to do with it. I'm saying maybe she kind of had a sixth sense that like something's going down here and it involves Nathan. Possibly. I mean, he was very troubled and so was she uh, allegedly as well. Uh, which we'll hear okay. more about her. So she has kind of the same mental illness. She has, has, yeah. She had severe bipolar at one point. I don't know how she. She seemed um, fine in the interviews, that, right. you know, in the documentary that I watched. But uh, um, that's bipolar. You know, you have good episodes and bad episodes. That's right. And so you have manic days. You have low. Nathan days. had yeah. a Nathan had a rough upbringing. So let's go into that. Nathan Jared Dunlap was born April eighth, nineteen seventy four, and shared a birthday with John Madden. One of, uh, one of my favorite all-time people, man. Just an <laughs> absolute legend. Rest in peace. You know, just died, I believe, earlier John this Madden. year. What an iconic yeah. voice. What a legend. What a legend. And uh, frustrating video game series that uh, is being held captive <laughs> by EA Sports, <laughs> in All my right. opinion. Um, yeah, they just keep putting out the same fucking trash every year. But what are you going to do? Well, when you buy up the the competition, yeah, you exactly. know, there's no, there's no motivation to make anything better. Mm-hmm. But Nathan Dunlap also shares a birthday with Dean Norris, a.k.a. Hank from uh, uh, good old Breaking, Breaking Bad. Bad? Yeah, oh, nice. Bad. Yeah. One of the most iconic uh, characters in that show, one of the most iconic characters in all of television history, in my opinion. No Hank doubt. was just an absolutely amazing character. Seriously. What a, what a lovable character, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Totally relatable, right? Yeah. Had his Pretty faults amazing. and his flaws, but also yeah. like how could you not let root for him at the same time? Right. At the same time, at the end of the day, he's trying to do the right thing and then gets punished mm-hmm. for it. Yeah. 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 Um, mm-hmm. so Nathan was raised by his adoptive father and his biological mother, who married each other when Nathan was a few months old, and he had never met his biological father. He was raised in Chicago, Illinois, Memphis, Tennessee, and Michigan, and then moved to Colorado in 1984. His mother, as I briefly mentioned, struggled with mental health issues and was, was diagnosed with schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. And there was, you know, stories of her walking around the house nude while the children were, you know, mm-hmm. awake, waking them up in the middle of the night, shaking them frantically for no reason, like just a lot of odd, bizarre behavior that would confuse young children for their mother yeah. to be doing. Right. Um, and then couple that with the fact that his father or his adoptive father jerry dunlap was uh, also allegedly very violent abusive and was also a child abuser of uh of nathan's sister um and supposedly oh she said that he at one point um nathan walked in when he was a teenager on their father abusing her and that that just turned up the violent abuse of nathan because the father knew what he had seen and mm. so the, the abuse just got worse from there right threatening um, him if he spoke or whatever yeah. mm-hmm. sources say that at least twice in his junior high school years nathan attempted suicide when he was 14 his adoptive father asked uh, the psychologist at overland high school to evaluate him and testing revealed signs of hypomania which i hadn't even heard of 
Hypomania is a condition in which you have a period of abnormally elevated extreme changes in your mood or emotions, energy level or activity level. This energized level of energy, mood and behavior must change from your usual self and noticeable. It is noticeable by others. So basically bipolar, it's like low grade yeah. bipolar. They just didn't want to diagnose him bipolar at the school. So they're like, well, Sounds we think way. he has hypomania, mm -hmm. which is probably the number one symptom of bipolar disorder, mm -hmm. you know? But they, they, they didn't test him any further, though. They didn't take him to see they anyone else. They, they didn't. Uh, they just left they didn't, it. Yeah, no tr no further treatment or formal diagnosis was applied to Nathan. And right? he just moved it's like, forward. It's like, okay, cool. We thought something was wrong. We just wanted to make sure. We're going to keep mm -hmm. doing what we're doing, though. Yeah, right. Let's just move on. I mean, it was a different time. They, they, mental health was not as much of a focus as it is True in that. today's world. True that. We're you talking mid-90s here. I think even at this time, when he was in, was it high school? It was probably late 80s, early 90s at that point. Okay. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I guess. So, um, Nathan would go on to commit several armed robberies at the age of 15, first using a golf club and then moving on to firearms. Ooh. Some of the locations he robbed would be a cafe, a pizzeria There's a little bit of foreshadowing moving yeah. on to Chuck E. Cheese later, a dry cleaners and a Burger King. He would spend time incarcerated at a juvie juvenile detention center. And due to an erratic episode, he was sent to a psychiatric hospital when he was released, he began selling drugs. He would be arrested five times on misdemeanor charges in 1993 alone before yeah. ultimately committing this this heinous act at this and then he, cheese. It blows me away, dude. Just this sentence alone. Yeah. He was arrested five times on misdemeanor offenses in 93, and then he's hired to work at a kid's joint. Chuck E. Cheese. In May of 1993, he's hired after I, five misdemeanor offenses that come year. Come on. Five by May. Think. I mean, think about it. He worked in May. He started yeah. working there in May, and he'd already had five misdemeanor charges prior to God that. Damn, Chuck E. Cheese will hire anybody. Yeah, right. Yeah, he should have never. You're even working got the around job. a bunch of kids. It's crazy. Yeah, he needs to be. He needs to be doing some manual labor or some shit. He don't need to be out here with these kids. He needs mm -hmm. to go into construction or something. Put his ass. Yeah, to why work don't you just hire real. him as a substitute teacher while you're at it? You know. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously. Crazy. Seriously, man, I just don't get it. I don't get that. Yeah. I guess because he was a minor. It wasn't on his pers his uh, permanent record yet, maybe. But Possibly. these types of offenses, these violent offenses, come on. He attacked someone with yeah. a golf club, and then he was robbing people also, with, with firearms? They had to have seen on his record that he had been sent to a psychiatric hospital as well recently. Right. It don't make sense, man. It's a troubled young man. You don't need him working they just didn't look into it. a bunch of children. Yeah. They just didn't look into it, period. That, that being said, his, his stint at uh, Chuck E. Cheese was not long-lived. He would ultimately be fired in July... So only mm -hmm. working there for two months uh, after a disagreement he had with his supervisor over scheduled hours. And it sounds like he was uh, a problem for management. He was, you know, uh, a disciplinary problem. He just did not like to listen to authority, which isn't <laughs> yeah, surprising looking at his background and his childhood. But uh, right. yeah, he was ultimately fired after just two months. Mm. And he would, it seems, hold on to a grudge. Um, and that would later play itself out uh, like six months later at this location. Mm. So back to the night of the murders, um, Dunlap's mother would be talking to police at the scene and agree to get her son to come talk to them. He was immediately one of their uh, number one suspects that they wanted to talk to, having had someone tell them at the scene that he was the shooter and also knowing that he had worked there at some point and he was yep. at the location on this night. He was seen eating a sandwich at this location prior to the murders as well. 
So Nathan would come in for questioning within 24 hours of the murders and admitted to having been seen or having been at the Chuck E. Cheese shortly before the massacre, having a sandwich, but says that he left before the store closed and had nothing to do with the shootings initially. This is his story. Right. But there's a big flaw in this, right? We have a survivor, but he can't talk yet. Yeah. So yeah, while, while the police are interviewing him, Bobby Stevens, the lone survivor of the shooting, is unconscious at the hospital and unable to help police identify the shooter, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. So the police turn next to Tra- to Nathan's girlfriend, Tracy, uh, with whom he had been at her home during the, you know, when they finally brought him in for questioning, he had been at her home, allegedly having sex with her or whatever. I mean, it's kind of irrelevant. But uh, yeah. Tracy would tell police that Nathan had showed up to her place the night of the murders with a gun and a bundle of cash asking for her help to dispose of the evidence. He was no, uh, he was not being secretive about his, what he had done. Apparently, he was going from location to location with different acquaintances, friends, his girlfriend, and yeah. just almost bragging about what he had done and showing them evidence of it and implicating them all. I was about to say them. what he, what he's actually <laughs> not doing them doing any favors. Is, he's just creating all these accessories. He doesn't mm-hmm. even realize. He doesn't give a shit. You know exactly. He's dragging everybody yeah. down with him. Yep. So that just gives these people more reason to testify against him. Honestly. <laughs> Yep. All the closest people in his life. What's up, Creepers? I want to tell you about a brand new podcast from USG Audio. It's a scripted cerebral thriller entitled The End Up with award-winning executive producer Sam Esmail and starring Himesh Patel, Merritt Weaver, John Reynolds, and Marianne Jean-Baptiste. The End Up is a story about connection. The story takes place in a tilted near-future world where terminal cancer patients who wish to end their suffering must attend a week-long boot camp. Two best friends wrestle with their goodbye after one enrolls in the program and the other grows skeptical. You can listen to the first three episodes on August 16th with new episodes dropping every Tuesday. So make sure you subscribe to The End Up wherever you listen to podcasts. Let's get back to the show. So police are immediately building a case. They talk to Tracy. She's telling them all this, you know, the story of him having the murder weapon, having cash. From there, they talk to more people and learn that he had made several stops that night after leaving the Chuck E. Cheese. Acquaintances of Dunlap said that he was frustrated over the firing and told a former coworker that he had planned to, quote, get even about the termination. And he had allegedly told acquaintances leading up to uh, the event in early December of his plans to rob Chuck E. Cheese and kill people. Mm. So this is... Ultimately, what the investigation uh, determined that had happened that night. So let's go back to the night of the killings. Nathan Dunlap, we now know, entered the restaurant at 9 p.m. He ordered a ham and cheese sandwich and played an arcade game, coincidentally a shooting game, possibly prepping himself for what he was about to do, a shooting game called Hogan's Alley. He then hid in the restroom at about 9.50 p.m., knowing that the store was about to close Mm -hmm. and according to himself, began hyping himself up in the bathroom, looking at himself in the mirror, telling himself, you can do this, essentially. He then comes out shortly after that, after closing at about 10.05 p.m., where he carried out the monstrous acts that we just discussed earlier. And we kind of briefly touched on it, but he later said in interviews that Colleen got to him when he approached her and she just looked up at him and said no. He said, I didn't have any feelings toward human life until I shot Colleen and that she sort of put some feelings into him. That yeah. being said, he still carried out what he carried out and killed another say, person you, after that. So Yeah, about to say, you kept going after that because you killed the guy in the kitchen, or you oh, you tried to kill Bobby in yeah. the kitchen, and then mm-hmm. you did kill the manager. The manager, the yeah. 
Yeah. yeah. So you must not have felt too bad about it. Mm-hmm. So after fleeing the scene with the murder weapon and $1,500 in cash, he made several stops. Interestingly, he initially headed to the same apartment complex that Bobby Stevens had escaped to and walked right past the apartment where Bobby Stevens was already talking to police inside. <laughs> he didn't realize it. I'm guessing the cop cars were parked, yeah. parked somewhere in the parking lot and he probably walked right past the apartment where the cops were. Right. Um, but he had a friend in the complex, Carl Wilson, and he allegedly left his jacket with Carl, told him about what he had done and showed him the money, according to police, getting Carl arrested later for accessory. He then, he then took a cab. He had They called a cab twice, him and Carl did, because the first time they saw a helicopter circling and they got nervous. And so yeah. they ended up calling another cab. And ultimately, uh -huh. uh, Nathan would go out and meet the cab driver and tell the cab driver to take him to a location near where his girlfriend lived, Tracy Leachman, where he then changed clothes, left the gun and some of the money. And she would ultimately be charged with accessory as well and spend some time behind bars. He then went to another friend's house who gave him a nearly identical gun to the one that he had used for the murders. That friend would also be later charged with accessory. So yeah, he got implicated three friends in, in trouble, got three friends in trouble, uh, following the acts. Um, he would ultimately be arrested within a few days. I think it was a, a week late. Yeah, December 23rd. So nine days after the uh, occurrences, they'd already talked to him a few times, but they finally gathered enough evidence to arrest him and charge him with four counts of first-degree murder on December 23rd, two days before Christmas in 1993, nine yeah. days after the slayings. And He did not give a shit. Dude, initially, no, not at all. He was still, you know in the same mental headspace. He had several outbursts in court during the trial. Quote, y'all can kill me right now. I don't give a fuck. So he's yelling at the witnesses and the stand just being a complete, uh, you know, disruption in the courtroom. Right. And this did not help his case because it takes 12, all 12 juror members to get a death penalty uh, conviction. And yeah. it only took three hours of deliberation to find him guilty on all counts of murder and ultimately charge him uh, or give him the death penalty for each of the four victims. So four counts of the death penalty, all 12 jury members agreed. This was in Arapahoe County, which apparently is a pretty staunchly pro death penalty, uh, County. At least it was at the time. Yeah. Um, and so the people wanted blood. I mean, and, they, they were, well, I mean, this guy is making it easy. He's making mm -hmm. it easy to yep. vote against him though. I mean, you're mm -hmm. coming into court, you're telling, fuck you, Showing don't no give a fuck, kill me. Yep. Yep. Like, I mean, yep. yeah, you're going to get all 12. Going he with took that, these eh? young people's lives for no reason, and now he's being—he's you know, yeah. showing no remorse and being brash about it, and yelling at the you know yelling in the courtroom when the family's members, victims, are, the victims' family members are there, and yelling yeah. at witnesses. This is insane. Yeah. Like I know he's young, but you're talking about a lifetime of violence right here already. Yeah. Like I don't know when he got this. Candidate. I don't know when he got this tattoo either, but I did notice uh, during some of the footage that he had a tattoo on his on his arm as well on his bicep that said by any means necessary with a picture of a smoking barreled handgun on his on his arm Ooh, that doesn't yeah. help help either uh-uh i don't look good yeah i wonder Which when he got could, that we almost <laughs> could title this episode by any means necessary the chuck e cheese shootings yeah really um and so he then shortly after his conviction while he's on death row does an interview um uh, with a woman and she asks him questions like, does it bother you that you killed people? And he said, no, I wanted them dead and they're dead. And she said, uh, you know, why did it not bother you? And he said, because I didn't have no association with them. To me, their life wasn't worth nothing. Mm. And during that interview is also though, when he did mention that it, it did get to him a little bit, 
when he killed a young woman and she said no as he was approaching. Right. <clears throat> so while on death row, he was finally officially diagnosed with bipolar and put on lithium. And following the, being put on lithium, there was a noticeable drastic change to his behavior. He, following that, became a, a model prisoner. And they began, him and his legal team began filing petitions to the court, arguing that his trial attorneys were ineffective by not presenting a defense based on his mental health issues and child abuse. Um, I, I, I do think that uh, during the trial, had they presented, uh, you know, the fact that he had some clear issues that he'd been admitted to a psychiatric hospital, that his mm -hmm. mental health had not been addressed by by the state at all that he had not been given the proper help that he needed they could have at least gotten him out of the death penalty i think had the had his attorneys presented this case in a good way right he absolutely was 100 guilty of what he did he knew what he was doing was wrong don't get me wrong but ultimately right. i think it would have been hard to get the death penalty if his legal team did a better job of obviously he was making it hard on himself though also having these outbursts yeah. in the courtroom but that say, would ultimately just prove their point that he is not right you know that he's had True. some serious bipolar anger issues and all of that yeah i, I so, agree i can yeah, i so can they, see how they sentenced him to death but i could also see how it could be very easy for him to get get off of it mm -hmm. and just you know it be just converted life, to a life, life sentence prison, yeah mainly because of his age that too you know his age his is the, is, yeah his age and his background is the biggest thing he's got going for him but i mean this guy's a cold-blooded killer i guess when mm -hmm. he's not on lithium so right. I, I don't know what you do with that mm-hmm so they, they filed that position uh, that petition in 2008, arguing that his counsel was ineffective. In August of 2010, this federal appeal was rejected, and they continued on with uh, him being, you know, his execution date and whatnot. Um, mm -hmm. On April 16th, 2012, the 10th Circuit Court of Appeals denied Dunlap's appeal of his death sentence yet again. His lawyers argued before the 10th Circuit that Dunlap's trial lawyers were negligent uh, during the sentencing by not providing evidence that he suffers from a mental illness. Uh, they argued that if the jurors heard evidence of his mental illness, that they would spare Dunlap from being sentenced to death. On May 1st, 2013, Judge William Sylvester announced that the execution date for Dunlap would be in mid-August of 2013. So they continue to move for forward. Then right. on May 21st or 22nd, 2013, his execution was put on hold as Colorado Governor John Hickenlooper decided against ex executing Dunlap or granting him clemency instead. He, he uh, signed a temporary reprieve. So all eyes were on Hickenlooper. He was the last defense, essentially, you know, the, the single high safety uh, when it's all goes. <laughs> and he's like the one guy that can stop this thing from happening. He could have, but he right. could have given it. Dunlap would be dead right now if Hickenlooper said, go ahead and kill him, basically. Yeah, he but just, that's a tough decision to make when you're up for reelection. Right. Oh, right. yeah, for sure. You don't want to be the, you don't want to be the axe man when it comes time for reelection because it's such a divisive topic, and then mm -hmm. you know most of your voters probably aren't even familiar with this case. They're mm -hmm. just seeing like, well, didn't he just sentence someone to death? We don't we don't believe in that. You know what I mean? Boom, mm -hmm. lost half your votes. Yeah. So I feel like these governors, especially during these reelection times, they try to be as middle of the road as possible, so they're not going to take one stance or the other. It was a if perfect anything, middle. Just buy time. It was perfectly. That's a, such a good point because all he was doing was straddling the fence, right? He didn't make a decision either way. Basically, he didn't even grant clemency. He just basically signed a temporary reprieve, <laughs> like, right. basically just like slapping a bandaid on it, you know? Yeah. So this reprieve meant that as long as he was governor, Dunlap would likely not be executed. And according to Hickenlooper, one of the reasons that he did uh, he did not choose full clemency was because Dunlap would have to remain would have to remain segregated from the rest of the prison population. 
The reprieve also meant that unless a governor issues a new executive order, the status of the execution of clemency request remain on hold, and he was constitutionally limited from running for a third term. So on November 6, 2018, Jared Polis was elected governor. And during the campaign, he said that he intended to sign a bill repealing the death penalty in Colorado. And regarding the Dunlap case, he said he had no problem following the current law and that he did not think it was appropriate to comment on a specific case during the campaign before actually becoming governor. Ultimately, he became governor and in March of 2020, he signed a bill repealing the death penalty. He also commuted the sentences for all three men on death row, including Dunlap without parole. The other two that were on death row at the time were Mario Owens and Robert Ray two men who killed a couple because the man in that couple uh, was basically uh, coming up to a court date to implicate them in a murder at a barbecue. So they took out the the witness that could have gotten them convicted and ultimately they got the death penalty when, when it was found out that they had killed this young man and his girlfriend at a stoplight. So all three of those uh, executions were canceled essentially and those three were given life. And Gary Lee Davis, a guy that we just did an episode on, at episode 176, titled Becky and the Bad Gary, would be the last person likely ever to be killed by the state of Colorado back in 1997. Yeah, you guys should check out that episode uh, on Becky and the Bad Gary. Again, that's episode 176. Mm -hmm. But also, um, there's a popular kids game that may have been based on this case may have been it's a little bit of a stretch and it's it's five nights at freddy's and if you have kids i'm sure you've heard of this game if your kids are of a certain age um but five nights at freddy's freddy's scariest monster is you basically what you do at five nights at freddy's is you try you try to spend the night at a chuck e cheese type place right but it's called freddy's um instead of chucky's it's called freddy's and Basically, the but in this game, the animatronics, like you know, like the animatronics that play on stage, mm-hmm. they come to life and they hunt you. And then you have to like move about and find these little safe rooms and stuff while these animatronics are trying to hunt you and apparently turn you into an animatronic. Yeah. So that's kind of the basis of the game, but you could see how it's not that far of a stretch. There's honestly. a YouTube channel, uh, and we'll put the link for this video in the description of this episode. Mm-hmm. A YouTube channel called Game Theory, where the host theorizes, you know, different origins to like games, and he he's the one. I'm sure, he draws a lot he, more conclusions from he's between the, the two. Yeah. He he's the one that uh, you know connected the dots, you know, to the to that case, to the case mm-hmm. that we just covered, uh, and that game Five Nights at Freddy's, and uh, he does a whole YouTube video on it, and can basically gives all the evidence saying, you know, this is why this game was based off of this case. And it's pretty compelling. I watched it and like, he definitely, you can see where he Dude, got it from. The, it's po- it's very possible that it is, it did come from this case. And so yeah. check that out. The game is, it's, it's a little bit disturbing. I'm not going to lie. Oh, like no the doubt. First time, yeah. I think he theorized I, that the, the animatronics that are hunting you were the ghosts of these victims in this case. Oh, and the, you know, the killer is, you know, now sitting uh, in prison you know, he's basically forced to sit here and think about what he did. Right. And it's almost like they're hunting him in his mind, these victims. Oh, okay. So it's fascinating. Okay, I see how he did it. Well, yeah. it could be. Yeah. It could be. Man, that game has blown up, though. There's so many different variations of it now. Uh, that game is yeah. creepy. And there's another game that's very similar. I think it's called Piggy. And then there's another one that's called Granny. And they're all basically the same. You have to survive in this in this area in this room in this building while something is running around trying to kill you 
Hmm. Like it's it's pretty terrifying, honestly. And then you consider all the school shootings that are out now, and then kids are playing games where they're trying to hide from killers at the same time. It's I don't know. Yeah, a little on it, the nose, huh? Yeah, a little too much. A little too much. Yeah. So I don't know. you got to watch right. this stuff. You know what's man. not? You know what is also a little too much? Having that? pits that don't have all my guy in them. A little too That's, much for people around you. <laughs> cool. You don't want to be too much. <laughs> you want to be. You want to be just right, guys. Okay. Right. You want to smell good, and you don't want to put aluminum in your in your armpits to do that, right? right. So right. lucky for you, there's Oh My Gaia. Mm-hmm. Oh My Gaia is an innovative, all-natural deodorant, fragrance, and beard oil company specializing in paraben and aluminum-free products. Their innovative line of deodorants inhibit the growth of odor-causing bacteria while still maintaining effectiveness. And at Oh My Gaia, they use only all-natural paraben and aluminum-free organic ingredients. Guys, don't worry. There's something... Oh my guy has a scent that's close to something that you already like, or maybe a, maybe there's a new scent out there that's perfect for you. That's what happened to me. I didn't even know about Egyptian musk, and then Wendy sends me a sample. Boom, that's my new scent. That's what I identify with, and I'm sure there's something for you guys too. There's vanilla, cherry, almond, sandalwood, lavender, lemongrass, uh, coconut, dreamsicle. Le- a dreamsicle is another good one too, man. But you gotta be careful. You'd be trying to lick your armpits if you're wearing dreamsicle. <laughs> it's so good. Uh, leather, lumberjack, honeysuckle, fireside, bergamot, amber, pear, sweet pea, sailor, barbershop, and of course, because we're true crime guys, we have our own scent called True Crime Pine. And because you guys are True Crime Guys listeners, you can get 15% off your order at ohmygaia.com by using the code word CREEPER, C-R-E-E-P-E-R, for 15% off your order. And that's at shop underscore ohmygaia on Instagram or ohmygaia.com. That's O-H-M-Y-G-A-I-A dot com. You won't regret yep. it, guys. You won't. And just how Michael mentioned, there's a scent for you at Oh My Gaia. There's also a, a blend for you over mm-hmm. at Tonic CBD, our other weekly sponsor. Tonic CBD, uh, can't live without it at this point. My favorite CBD company. And um, they basically, they, they just do it differently. They, they really are the highest quality. You know, they... The way that they uh, grow their hemp on a naturally organic farm in upstate New York, and then it only travels 30 minutes to their state-of-the-art facility. Um, And then they create blends with superfoods. And they also have uh, the vape pen, which we neglect to mention, but that is great for like targeted support just immediately. If you're feeling a little anxious, you're you're having some chronic pain, you take a rip off that vape pen, they got that as well. But they got different blends mixing with things like black seed oil, they put yeah. even maple, maple syrup, all natural maple syrup into their products. Um, so they have different blends. I'm sure one of them is for you. Um, and also you can check the the quality of their products by tapping them uh, your phone on the top of the packaging. There's a microchip in the product's tube packaging, which allows you to tap your phone and uh, check out third-party lab reports, product information, details about their farm, even helpful blog posts to provide you with different uh, some CBD education. So with values rooted in quality, integrity, and sustainability, Tonic is committed to creating plant-based wellness products that are good for you and good for the planet. Visit tonicvibes.com to learn more and use code word CREEPER for 20% off your order. That's tonicvibes.com, code word CREEPER for 20% off your order. Um, So definitely uh, support the uh, companies, the small companies that are supporting us, and you get a giant added benefit because these products, you're sure to love them. 
No one's Absolutely. ever tried Oh My Guy. We've never heard a negative review about Oh My Guy or Tonic CBD. Everybody that tries it is like, oh my God, thank you guys for you know showing me this. So. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely, guys. Just yep. just small, natural things to better your, your day-to-day life. Yep. All right. Uh, what else we got? Uh, let me see if we got some, some new reviews real quick. All right. Uh, I well, in think the meantime, those... yeah, uh, you uh, guys can check out Patreon, patreon.com slash guys, where we have all types of different shows on our network. Um, at the end of every single free episode now, you can hear a little outro, and uh, one of our writers, Andy, who helps with Sandu Stories, he he guys he lets you guys know when all of our shows are coming out, uh, what days they're released, and where you can find all of that content at the end of every show. If you guys wait till after the outro music, give that a listen, and uh, it'll run you by. But patreon.com slash guys for just five bucks a month, you can get access to everything we create, which is four to five shows a week plus extra monthly exclusives. All right. But you got some right. shout outs? Yeah, I want to thank Odd Vegan on, uh, from the U.S. who says, longtime listener, now turned Patreon member. Speaking of Patreon, right I just on. started listening. They say, I just started listening back in 2017 and would binge listen, listen to your episodes on repeat most of my days. I still have an original Keep Creeping Van hoodie from the way back when, and I oh. recently signed up for Patreon after waiting for a while to be able to. Thanks for creeping on and keeping murder charming. Love y'all, Brayden. Thank you, Brayden. Right on. Thanks, Brayden. Old yeah. school uh, creeper. Yeah. And then we got uh, Twink ZZZZ in the US uh-huh. says, another star for the Chihuahua, laugh out loud. I appreciated your <laughs> Chihuahua story. Additionally, I appreciate your sensitivity to the victims. It's a delicate balance. Well done, gentlemen. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Then we got Heidi True Crime 71 in the US says, love it. Five stars. I don't usually leave do reviews. Love y'all. Keep up the great work. And, still, and I don't like the music intros either. I skip them. And that's fine. <laughs> I'd say the vast majority of people yeah. love Michael's intros and then there's those people that don't, but that's the beauty of podcasting it's, is you don't have to it. listen to it. You can skip ahead. It's fine. You can skip right through it. It's usually about two, two and a half minutes if that helps. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so then we got one more. Jenny Liz in the US uh, leaves a really long review here. It says, love it. Five stars. I'll listen to you guys every night for my night shift at work. I usually avoided murder podcasts because the stories would freak me out. I get stuck on scary thoughts too too, like Lauren, <laughs> but you guys uh, deliver scary stories comically where I want to hear them. My last name is Hicks, and I died laughing at the last pirate podcast where Lauren explained Hicks's appearance with your accents. Please don't ever <laughs> stop the accents. They're hilarious. I love my, oh my guy, by the way, and I'll soon be a part of Patreon. Yeah, baby, let's go. Nothing beats a good podcast, like good music, amazing accents, a comical close friendship, and true crime <laughs> stories. Keep it up, guys. Your friend, Jen A. Gump. Jenna. Right, uh, Jenna. Well, Jenny, right. you can sit here. <laughs> Jenna, you can listen to us as long as you want. <laughs> right. Jenna. We appreciate that. Appreciate that very much. All right. All right. I think that's that about it. it? Yeah, we got we hit on everything. Patreon, all of our content over there. Five bucks a month or two dollars a month gets you access to the premium episode. Did we just do Patreon last week? We did, right? We did. Yep. Okay, so that's why we weren't on our main feed last week. You can go check out that episode. Two bucks a month, Patreon. You can pay up front $21 and you're done for the year if you want. That's right. That's it, guys. Have a great week. Keep creeping. See you next week. Keep creeping, guys. True crime, guys. In the desert, we like a mirage. It's okay if you clicked on us because you thought we was true crime garage. Now we ain't mad at you. Sit down, let us talk at you. I'm talking to the creeper army. We out here making murder, get murder, get murder. In the desert, we like a mirage. It's okay if you clicked on us, cause you thought we was true crime garage.
Nah, we ain't mad at you. Sit down, let us talk at you. I'm talking to the Creeper Army. We out here making murder charming. From the minds of true crime guys, come. TCG Weekly. If you've enjoyed this episode, please feel free to check out all the other programs on the TCG Network. Every Wednesday, a new episode of True Crime Guys proper, Strange and Unexplained on Mondays, and Full House Fantasy Football on Fridays to start your weekend. If those aren't enough, head on over to our Patreon account, where you can have access to hundreds of hours of content, including older episodes and other Patreon exclusives like Strange Shorts, Sandu Stories, Higher Thoughts, and the 5-Minute Murder Show. But until next time, guys, keep creeping. How do you, how do you shut this thing off? Over? Oh, shut up, boy.